It's good to be with you, church. For those of you that are new or visiting, we're so glad you're here. I'm so glad to be with you. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at The Stone. We've been working our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's a sermon that Jesus preached to begin his public ministry And it's also a sermon that Jesus preached on a regular basis throughout his ministry. So far in his sermon, Jesus has made it very clear what belonging to the kingdom of God looks like. What belonging to the kingdom of God looks like. It's an upside down kingdom. It's a totally otherworldly kind of kingdom in which being poor gains you entrance not being rich, a kingdom in which power is used not for the purpose of being served, but to serve. But if you are a religious Jewish person sitting there listening to Jesus preach this sermon, having studied God's word and the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, you'd be raising your hands at this point going, ooh, ooh, Jesus, call on me, Jesus, I have a question. I have a question, Jesus. What question do you think they had? So far in preaching the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus has already said lots of startling things, but in some ways, what he hasn't talked about is even more startling. The question would have been, what about the law, Jesus? What about the law? You haven't said anything about God's laws. You're teaching us that we need to be poor in spirit, that we need to mourn our sins to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's it. We don't have to keep and obey all of God's commandments, right? So far, what Jesus was teaching was that people could enter God's kingdom by grace. What about the law, Jesus? To Jesus' original Jewish audience, everything that Jesus has taught so far must have sounded like he was doing away with God's laws, doing away with all the things he commanded, doing away with everything that the prophets wrote in the Old Testament. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, our text for today, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, for the Jewish believers at the time, entrance into God's kingdom by grace without mentioning the importance of keeping God's laws sounded entirely foreign. But for us as Christians living in America today, the idea of entrance into God's kingdom by grace, that doesn't sound strange at all. But what does sound strange? Matthew 5, 17 through 20 sounds strange. We're like, what? What's all this stuff about every commandment having to be fulfilled, God? What's all this stuff about our righteousness having to exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees in order to enter into the, into the kingdom of heaven? You see, I'm generalizing it a bit, but... The Jewish believers in the Old Testament and of Jesus' day had such a view of God that God not requiring obedience sounded strange to them. 
But many times as Christians living in America today, our view of God is such that, that God, the idea of God requiring obedience, the idea of God requiring anything from us sounds strange. What do you mean I have to, God? I thought salvation was free. I thought it was by grace. So which is it? Does God require obedience or doesn't he? Do I have to obey God and keep all of his laws and commandments or don't I? In Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus is teaching about the nature of God's word. The nature of God's righteous requirement of the law that he has commanded for us in the Bible. Must we keep them? What happens if I don't? As we look at this text together, let's ask three questions together regarding God's word. God's word, first, why can't it be abolished? Why can't it be abolished? Second, how can it be fulfilled? And third, does God require obedience or does he offer grace? Why can't God's word be abolished? How can it be fulfilled? And does God require obedience or does he offer grace? So first, why can't Jesus just do away with God's commandments? Why can't it be abolished? Don't we as human beings say things all the time that we just take back? Actually, I didn't mean it. Actually, I realized I was being harsh now. I take it back. I'm sorry, Angela. I didn't mean it when I said I'm the one always cleaning the house. Just most of the time I do, I take it back, right? We take back our words all the time. We abolish our words all the time. So why can't God? Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when Jesus says law and the prophets, it's just another way of saying the scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus says, I'll tell you why God's word can't be abolished. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says, here's the reason why God's word can't just be put away or taken back because the nature of God's word is such that heaven and earth is going to pass away before the scriptures pass away. In Luke 16, Jesus says it this way, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus is speaking to the permanence and the immutability of God's word. He's saying, you see that mountain over there? How permanent is a mountain, you know? Jesus says it's easier for that mountain to poof, disappear, than for one dot of God's law to become void. Jesus is saying the Bible is not a product of nature. It's greater than that. It's more permanent and enduring than the most permanent and enduring thing on this earth. He's saying God's word is not like our word. We make mistakes. We misspeak. We exaggerate. And we overreact. And so we might have to take back our words sometimes. But God's word is not like our word. He means what he says. And he says what he means, and it cannot be abolished. It will not be taken back. Instead, it must be fulfilled, all of it. And notice he says in verse 18, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from God's word. What the English translators are trying to get at is Jesus saying, not the smallest letter and not the smallest part of a letter of God's word will pass away. This is the view of the Bible that Jesus had, that the scriptures are divinely inspired, not just in its general content, not just in its general message, but down to every letter, down to the smallest letter, down to the smallest part of a letter. Is this your view of the Bible? 
Church, is this your view of the Bible? This was Jesus' view of the Bible. I hear people say all the time, I hear even Christians say, I believe the Bible, I believe the general message of the Bible, but there's just no way we can believe every part of it. There are just some parts of it that we can't hold on to anymore as Christians. That, that was for a different time. It was for a different context. There are parts of the Bible that are just archaic, parts of it that are just outdated and primitive at best and insensitive and even hateful at worst. Now, legitimately, we're going to see that there are many, many Old Testament laws that we don't keep anymore because Jesus has fulfilled them. But no longer keeping a law because Jesus has fulfilled them is different. It's entirely different than not keeping it because you disagree, right? No longer keeping God's law because Jesus has fulfilled them is entirely different than not keeping God's law because you don't believe that it's right or you don't believe that it's good because you disagree, I hear people say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe everything the Bible has to say. But what Jesus do you have to believe in apart from the Bible? How did you get your ideas of who Jesus is outside of the scriptures? You can't accept Jesus, but reject the Bible. And because of what Jesus is saying here, you can't even reject the smallest part of the Bible and claim to believe what Jesus believed. Jesus said God's word cannot be abolished. It will not be taken back. It must be fulfilled. And that's what the whole purpose of his life was all about. He came to fulfill the whole of God's law. His entire life was about it. And so to have a different view of God God's word than Jesus is not just to disagree with him on some small point of his life, but it's to disagree with the entire purpose of his life. But you might be saying, how can I trust the Bible? How can I know that the Bible we have is, God, is, is God's word as, it, as he intended it to be written? What about translation errors? And didn't people pick and choose what books of the Bible made it into the Bible and which didn't? How do we know that the right books made it in? These are all really great Questions, of course, questions that have been asked throughout centuries, and I believe theologians and scholars have answered so sufficiently and helpfully, and so there are very good academic answers to all those questions. For instance, I would recommend a book by Greg Gilbert called Why Trust the Bible, and Pastor John Piper has written a book called A Peculiar Glory, and in it he said something that I found to be so true. He said, as he sat through seminary classes on all the reasons, right, all, all the technical academic reasons for why we can trust the Bible, that he remembers all those arguments being really helpful, as I did when I was in seminary. But the next week, if an unbeliever or a skeptic would come and ask, well, how can I trust this Bible? That he had a hard time remembering all these technical and good and academic reasons. Why? I remember myself having a hard time remembering these arguments, not because they weren't good, right, or sufficient, because, but because if I'm being honest, that's not why I came to trust the Bible as God's word. I don't know about you, but I didn't take a hold of the Bible because I researched and saw all the reasons for why the canonical process was trustworthy. That's not why. I didn't take a hold of the Bible because of my good research, but at a point in my life, this book took a hold of me. That's why. I didn't come to believe in the Bible because of my research and my searching through the scriptures. I came to believe in the Bible because the scriptures started searching me. And if you're a skeptic here today, 
And if you come to believe one day, it won't be because you found in your research that the Bible being true is plausible and reasonable. You won't come to believe because someone gave you some airtight argument for the reliability of the scriptures. You'll come to believe when you go to the scriptures, when you go to this book, and in it you meet a person named Jesus. Not when you get an airtight argument, but when you meet this airtight person in whom you can't find any flaws, this Jesus who makes you so uncomfortable with his perfection, this Jesus who keeps contradicting you with his teachings, someone who keeps interjecting his will over yours, but at the same time you realize that he's the one that you've been looking for all your life, this real Jesus, not a made-up Jesus, but the real Jesus of the Bible who you don't want to believe in because it means losing control but you just have to because you can't deny him anymore. He keeps coming after you. That's how you'll come to believe. And maybe you're a Christian and you're wrestling with doubts about the Bible. Just keep going to Jesus. Just keep coming to Jesus through God's word. Only Jesus, not a list of arguments, not even good ones, will keep you. This real Jesus, who you've come to know because all of the Bible, all of God's words point to him, is now pointing you back to God's word and saying all of it, all of it is true. And not only that, but all of it will come true, every bit of it, because it's God's word. It can't just be put away or ignored. It can't be abolished. Jesus said it has to be fulfilled. Okay, so then the next question, how can it be fulfilled? How can all the things that God is commanding in his word be fulfilled? If you were to count all of God's commandments given to us just in the Torah alone, the first five books of the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments. And so how can the law of God be fulfilled? If you were to ask this question to a Jewish believer in Jesus' day, they would have said, we fulfill it. All the commandments God gave us, we obey it, we accomplish it, we have to fulfill it. And perhaps as Christians in America today, we snicker at that and think, oh, those foolish Israelites, it's impossible to keep all of God's commands, right? You know, the Israelites in the Old Testament, they get a bad rap sometimes. We look at some of the things that they do and some of the things that they think and believe, and we think, how in the world could they do that? But here's one thing about them. Whenever the Israelites encountered God, and whenever they heard him give his laws and command something of them, you know what they said? They always said, we will do all that you command. We will do all that you command. Did they really think they could obey? We don't know. All we know is that there was such a fear and an awe of who it was that was commanding them that it always produced the default response of we will do all that you command. And so what if you were there, God giving all of his commands, all 613 of them, one after another, So talk to me about lying, God. If my roommate asks, who ate my chips? And I just don't say anything. I'll just be be quiet. Is that lying? Like if I go 100 miles per hour in a 55 miles per hour zone, that's breaking the law of the land. But if I just go five over, at best we would have questions, right? What about this, God? What about that? And at worst, we would completely refuse. That's unreasonable, God. How can anybody obey all that? But the Israelites had such a view of God that whatever he commanded, their answer was, we will do all that you command. They couldn't imagine giving him any other answer in light of who he was. That was their default. But we oftentimes have the wrong default, don't we? As God's people, our default should be, well, is it God's word? 
Did he command it? Well, then you better prove to me that I don't have to fulfill that command until then I'm going to obey. That should be our default. But oftentimes our default is, well, you better prove to me that I have to do that until then I won't. So the Israelites living in the Old Testament times and Jesus' original audience, they had the right idea. They knew that God demanded obedience, but they couldn't possibly imagine the level of obedience that he demanded, that God demanded complete and absolute obedience to his word. And so what Jesus says in verse 20 would have been absolutely shocking to them. Verse 20 For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were the professional law keepers of the day. People back then had a saying, they said, if only two people make it to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee. The scribes were the foremost experts at interpreting the scriptures. They devoted their lives to studying God's word. And the Pharisees, we think of them as hypocrites in light of all the ways that Jesus called them out. But at the time, people couldn't possibly imagine being more righteous than a Pharisee. There was never more than 6,000 of them at one time. They were known as the Brotherhood. And they entered into this Brotherhood by taking a pledge that they would spend all their lives observing every detail of God's law. And so when Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven, this would have been absolutely shocking to hear. It'd be like if Jesus were to say to us, Unless your basketball playing exceeds that of Michael Jordan's, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't talk to me about LeBron. (laughs) It'd be like if he said, unless your overtime skills exceeds that of Texas A&M, you will never enter the kingdom, right? For those of you that watch This Is Us, it'd be like Jesus saying, unless your dad's skills exceeds that of Jack Pearson's, you will never enter into the kingdom. Only time Jack Pearson ever failed was running into a burning house to save a dog. I don't know, I don't know why he did that. Sorry if I gave something away. (laughs) You'd be like, impossible, God, Jack Pearson. Paul says in Romans 10.3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The Israelites were ignorant of the extent of God's righteousness, therefore the extent to which God demanded righteousness from his people. They thought they themselves could keep all of God's law, but they couldn't, and that's the bad news. We have a God in heaven who demands absolute and perfect obedience, but we just can't do it. And that's why verse 17 is such good news. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus is saying, you think good news would be if I were to just abolish God's law, right? Just to take it back. But that wouldn't be good news at all, because then how could you ever trust and believe God's word? If he could just take it back at any time. Instead, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill them. Jesus is saying God's word is such that it can't ever be abolished. And God's righteousness is such that we can never attain it with our own obedience. And so the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to fulfill God's law for us. Romans 8, 3, for God has done, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son. 
it was impossible for us to fulfill the law of God because of the weakness of our flesh. And so God has fulfilled it for us by sending his own son. And so that's what we think about, right? When we think about Christmas, God sending his own son. We think about the gift of the manger. And when Easter rolls around, we think about the gift of the cross. But what we have to realize is that when you think about all the righteous requirements of God's commandments, that they weren't all fulfilled on Christmas Day when Jesus was born. Just because Jesus was born, all the laws fulfilled? No. And they weren't all fulfilled on the cross when Jesus died. How was God's law as a whole fulfilled, not just at the birth of Jesus, or even with the death of Jesus, or even with the resurrection of Jesus, apart from the 33 years of the everyday life of Jesus, the perfect obedience that God required would not and could not have been fulfilled for us. We think about Jesus dying for us, And during Christmas time, we think about Jesus being born for us, but do we think about the fact that Jesus had to live for us? The everyday life of Jesus, not just the gift of the manger, not even just the gift of the cross, but the gift of his everyday life. Each time, Mother Mary said, come here, Jesus. And if child Jesus didn't obey. Every time child Jesus obeyed Mother Mary, that was a gift. It was a gift for us. If just one time teenager Jesus would have disobeyed or had one lust-filled thought, everything would have fallen apart. It wasn't just in the big acts of obedience, but in the everyday, seemingly mundane acts of obedience that nobody saw but God, Jesus was fulfilling all the righteous requirements of God's law for us to purchase our salvation. See, many of us think that when it comes to God and us that our main problem was sin and that our sins needed to be paid for and that's why Jesus had to be born so that he could die on the cross and forgive us of our sins. And yes, that's absolutely true. Our sins, of course, was a problem. But it wasn't the only problem. Our problem wasn't just that we were sinful. Our problem was that we were lacking all righteousness. What do I mean by that? When Angela and I ask our daughter, Evie, Evie, what do you want to pray and ask God to help you with? And she says, I want to pray that I don't punch my brothers. <laughs> okay, so that's good. Not punching your brothers is good, even though God may be using you as a divine instrument of his wrath on your <laughs> brothers. So not punching your brothers is good, but is that the goal? Just to not sin in a sense? Just to be neutral? No, and so we say, how about you pray and ask God that he would help you be kind to your brothers? see, when it comes to God and us, our problem wasn't just that we were punching our brothers and so we needed to stop. Our problem was that we weren't being kind to one another. Our problem wasn't just our sin, but the lacking of righteousness. Our our problem wasn't just that we were doing bad things and so we needed to be forgiven of those things. Our problem wasn't that we were doing, we weren't doing all the good things that God was commanding us to do, see? Sinlessness is not the goal, A lot of times as Christians, we make that the goal, sinlessness, just not doing bad things, right? And Adam and Eve were sinless, weren't they? But when temptation came, they fell, even though they were sinless. If all that Jesus accomplished was to make us a sinless people and we're sitting around heaven one day, sinless, the fall in the garden would happen all over again at the first presence of temptation. We needed to be more than sinless. We needed to be all righteous, In God's kingdom, the opposite of guilty is not innocent. In God's kingdom, the opposite of guilty is not innocent. The opposite of guilty is all righteous. 
And so that's why we needed Christmas so desperately. We needed Jesus to be born, not just so that he can die and forgive us of our sins, but so that he might live and with his everyday obedience, fulfill all righteousness and then credit it to us. Say, here it is. All the righteousness I have accomplished, I give it to you. It's to your credit. And what an absolute relief, right? What joy that our salvation isn't dependent on our ability to obey, but his ability to obey. It's not dependent upon our level of righteousness, but his level of righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, that our salvation has been accomplished for us, all without us even lifting a finger. So then what does this mean? If Jesus obeyed everything for us, what does that mean? Our last question is, in light of Jesus fulfilling God's law for us, does God still require us to obey or does he offer us grace? Let's look at what Jesus says in verse 19, starting with 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Verse 19, therefore, right, therefore, in light of Jesus fulfilling all the laws, therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what is verse 19 saying? Jesus has come to fulfill God's law, but still, what? What are we to do? We're called to obey. Jesus says we're not to relax one of the least of these commandments, but that we are called to do them and teach them. But be careful Our our obedience looks different now in light of Jesus fulfilling them. Very quickly, because I know some of you are going to have this question, okay, we're still called to obey. What about all those laws in the Old Testament, making sacrifices, doing crazy things? Do we have to obey all those things? Well, theologians have divided God's law into three different categories. It's man-made. It's not a perfect system, and so they overlap here and there, but I think it's helpful. God's civic laws. Civic laws were given to govern God's people as a single nation of people. The purpose of these laws was to have Israel, the nation of Israel, to be a set-apart nation so that they could be a priesthood to all the nations, but Israel failed to keep them. So Jesus has come to fulfill these laws by being the truly set-apart one and now is the perfect high priest who through us invites every nation to himself. And so the laws given to govern Israel as a nation, we don't keep anymore because now we are a people of God from every nation. God's ceremonial laws. These are the laws regarding making sacrifices and building the temple and and having a priest and on and on. There's hundreds of them. Well, Jesus has fulfilled these laws by becoming the once and for all sacrifice. He's the temple. We don't have a place to go for worship. Jesus is the place of worship. He is the high priest who forever lives to make intercession for us. And so what does obeying God's ceremonial laws look like? Because make no mistake, we have to obey them when it comes to God's commandments, it's not a question of do we obey, do we not? It's how do we obey? We obey by not keeping the ceremonial laws. We obey by not making sacrifices anymore, right? Because he's the once and for all sacrifice. We obey by not building a temple. We obey by not choosing another priest. Not keeping a command because it's been fulfilled is different than not keeping a command because you disagree. God's moral laws. These are the laws that reflect God's moral character, him as a person, right? 
These are laws that reflect his character that never changes. And so even though Jesus has perfectly fulfilled these laws as well, we obey these laws by keeping them ourselves. But our motivation for obedience changes because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled them. We obey not so that God will save us, but because he has saved us. Our tendency when it comes to God's law is to either relax it or to be enslaved under it. Some of us relax God's commandments by saying, I don't have to obey. I don't have to do anything because Jesus did everything for me. And so you're living a miserable life that bears no fruit and has no purpose because nothing you do in life counts for anything. You're you're not living the way that God has created you to live. God didn't create you in his image and send his son to die for you, to save you, so that you can live the rest of your life thinking, oh, I don't have to do anything because Jesus did everything for me. Well, Jesus did perfectly obey for you. He did die for you, but then he says, now take up your cross and follow me. Obey as I've obeyed. I'm gonna give you the power of the Holy Spirit so that for the very first time you have the power to obey. You see, in the Old Testament, God's people thought they could fully obey God even though they couldn't. They thought they could fully obey even though they couldn't. But our problem today is that we don't think we have to obey even though we can. Our problem is we don't think we have to obey even though we can, even though by the power of the Holy Spirit we actually can obey God. While others of us, even though Jesus has perfectly fulfilled God's law for you, you're not yet living in that reality. You're still living enslaved under the law. You're living a life that says, I better obey, I better obey or God won't love me. You're walking around exhausted because you're constantly thinking, I better obey or he won't bless me. I better keep all the rules or he won't save me. You're living constantly in fear and have no sense of the greatness of God's love for you that God himself has done all that was needed, all that was necessary for us to be together once again. That he loved you so much that when it came to you and him being together, he didn't leave anything to chance. That he himself did everything that was required. He himself accomplished everything that was needed so that you can be together with him once again. In Old Testament times, God hammered out the gift of his law on stones of tablets. So does God require obedience or does he offer us grace? The answer is yes. Answer is yes, he wants obedience and he gives us grace. Through Jesus, God is not only giving us the grace of eternal life after we die, right? Some of us, our view of grace is too small. Your view of grace is that God gives us the grace so that after we die, we go to heaven. Well, that's great grace, but it has to be greater than that. The grace that he's actually offering is not just the grace of entering into heaven after we die, but the grace that he's giving us is the grace of being able to obey him in the here and now, everyday obedience, the grace of being able to obey Jesus as, obey Jesus as he himself obeyed. He gives us grace. To obey. It's not one or the other. He gives us grace to obey. It's both. And so in closing, this is what Christmas is all about. In Old Testament times, God did hammer out the gifts, gift of his law on stone tablets. It was a gift because it showed God's, pe- God's people a bigger picture of God's holiness as he truly is. But Paul tells us that the law was always meant to be a pointer 
a tutor as it proved our inability to obey. It was causing us to cry out to God for a better gift, a greater gift, a gift that God had always intended to give. And on Christmas Day, God sent us that better and greater gift that we so desperately needed. Not just the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, but the perfect law keeper. The God-man who would be born, who would perfectly obey each and every day and then die on the cross and rise again on the third day. And in doing so, Jesus traded places with us. He took our place and gave us the gift of his place. He took the place of the worthless lawbreaker and gave us his seat, the seat of the perfect law keeper, the seat of the perfectly loved and perfectly treasured child of God. All because on Christmas Day, what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, what else can we say but that we thank you for Jesus? You are a God who is greater in holiness than we could ever imagine. You are a God who therefore demands perfect and absolute righteousness and obedience from your people. And Lord, under that law, we were crushed. There was no hope. And your, yet your great intent through your law was not to crush us. Your great intent through the gift of your law was to point us to a better gift. The one who would come. The one who has always been promised to come. Our Messiah. Our Savior. The great example. This person named Jesus who has entered into our world one day in history, wrapped himself in human flesh, who humbled himself in the likeness of man. He was born to us. And he not only died on the cross for us to forgive us of our sins, he not only rose again from death to conquer sin and death forever, but Lord, Today specifically, we are overwhelmed as we think about the everyday life of Jesus. Every day waking up, every day going to sleep, every day obeying, every day perfectly obeying so that he might purchase for us all righteousness. And if you're here and you've never placed all your hope and trust in this person named Jesus. How about today? How about today? He has come. He has come for you. You did bear the weight of God demanding every righteous requirement of the law. And you were crushed under it. But Jesus has come and he's come for you and he's fulfilled them all. And we have an opportunity and a calling to trust in him and place all of our hope in him and not in our own works and so be saved. He's come to trade places with us. 
Will you trade places with him? Father, let us be a church who are every day overwhelmed by the beauty of Jesus, who he is, Lord. Let us be a church, Lord, who not only receives the grace of eternal life, but the grace of everyday obedience to obey as he's obeyed and in doing so, point this world to this person named Jesus who has saved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.